Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. We talk with a professor from the University of Alberta about Belarus, Russia, and the new Cold War. And we discuss the local Toronto bar Sneaky D's. It could be torn down after the city announced it has received a proposal for a 13-story building in its place. Should nostalgia be more important than commerce? All of that is coming up. Let's get to it. You know, you can labor too hard to try and put a historical context or template on current events by looking in the past and saying, well, this is just like so and you know, such and such a thing in the past, and we're repeating history once again. But for many people, and especially the amateur historians like myself, who like to think I know a thing or two about it, but probably don't, but I, I am constantly reminded today, in today's world, of Germany in the 1930s, and an aggressive and expansionist Germany, and the world fails to contain it. Is that what's happening right now with Putin's Russia? Because it is clearly expansionist. It is clearly aggressive. It clearly does not care about international law. In Berlin right now, Alexei Navalny, the uh, critic who the Germans say was poisoned with a Soviet-era poison, has now emerged from a coma. The NATO Secretary General, pointing to that event and other recent events, has said that we are on the verge of a new Cold War and a new arms race, and that it is incumbent on Putin and Russia to pull back. Meanwhile, is Belarus the next object that Putin is after? Is it possible that a closer ties, uh, an almost a sort of annexation of Belarus, financially, if not in terms of sovereignty, is in the future? To give me a better perspective of what's happening in Belarus... I am pleased to welcome to the program Dr. David Marples, who is a professor at the University of Alberta and also part of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and president of the North American Association for Belarusian Studies. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you bring me up to date? I, I'm, I'm not going to try and butcher the, some of the names here, but the, the most recent developments with this, this critic that was alleged to have been kidnapped uh, and then taken to the Ukrainian border. Yeah, I mean, during the election campaign that took place on August the 9th, the opposition were led by three women. Uh, one was the election candidate uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, and the other two were members of the candidates of two other candidates who had not been allowed to run. And one of those was Maria Kolesnikova. And she was detained yesterday. Well, in fact, she was abducted off the street and taken to the Ukrainian border, along with two of her associates. The two associates uh, went straight through into Ukraine. She apparently tore up a passport and refused to leave Belarus. The other two candidates, uh, the other two women uh, who were with her throughout the campaign, one had fled to Lithuania and the other one fled to Russia and then moved to Poland after that. So it's been a campaign really to sort of chop the head off the opposition movement by arresting or making sure that these people are out of the country. Um, and not only them, I mean, there are, there are dozens of others. About 700 have been arrested and 
four people have been killed and there have been mass demonstrations every weekend in Belarus to protest the rigged elections that gave the president, Lukashenko, 80% of the vote. Um, most likely, the female candidate, Zikhanovskaya, won that election. But, you know, it's hard to prove it. How much do you see the hand of Vladimir Putin behind what is, if not the actual election and the reprisals within Belarus, but how much do you see uh, his hand here? I didn't see particularly his hand in the election. I mean, most notably, he kept out of it. And he reacted rather slowly. And I think, you know, to give a little bit of background, he and Lukashenko have not been getting along well for some time. They've had disputes over oil and gas prices. They've had disputes over whether Belarus should have further integration with Russia. And although he's a dictator and is a ruthless uh, leader, Lukashenko has resisted further integration into Russia. But at the moment, you know, Belarus is already a member of the Russia-Belarus Union, the Eurasian Economic Union, the Collective Security um, Treaty Organization, all of which are controlled and dominated by Russia. The population of Belarus is mainly Russian-speaking, and the media is completely dominated by the, by the media of Russia. You know, this is what you hear mostly when you go to Belarus and listen to radio and, and watch TV. So Russia has already got a huge foothold in Belarus. What it, the question is now is whether it would, it would want more than that. Um, and I think... You know, from one perspective, Belarus um, is awkward and Putin might like to see a different leader other than Lukashenko. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to see a popular revolution that removes the dictator because it might um, spark a copycat one in Russia itself. Is it, is it not also a worry for Putin that if there is a popular revolution, that whatever regime or whatever uh, government emerges might try and tilt that country further to the West? Yeah, I mean, in theory, yes, but there have been no pro-Western manifestations in the election campaign or in the weeks that followed. I haven't seen a single European Union flag, for example. We only see the white-red, white flag that was the national flag between 1991 and 1995. We don't see any pro-Russian flags. We don't see any anti-Russian flags. And it's the same with the EU, neither anti nor pro. It's been a purely national campaign for freedom, if you like, for more democracy, for an end to dictatorship. And the demonstrators have been very careful not to try and appeal to either side to intervene in any way, because an appeal to the West would bring in Russia um, immediately. I don't think there'd be any doubt about that. And that's what they have in mind. And that's why I think it's been such a clever, cleverly conceived campaign. What is the path forward for Belarus? That's a difficult question. I think there are several things that could happen. I think, I mean, the ideal one would be democratic change, a change of government, a change of leadership, perhaps brought about through outside mediation in which both Russia and the West would take an equal part. That would be, you know, for me personally, that would be the ideal solution. There's also a possibility of martial law. Uh, the president has on his side the KGB, he has the riot police, and he has the army. He doesn't have the people, but he has the forces that have the weapons. So martial law is also a possibility which would produce a very grim future for Belarusians. And the third option is the one you brought up at the beginning, that maybe um, 
Belarus could be merged with Russia in some sort of much more highly integrated union than the one that's been taking place since 1999. And I don't think for Belarusians that really is a good option. In fact, most of the population would be opposed to either number two or number three. The question is, can you have um, a protest like this in 2020 without other larger powers moving in? I mean, Belarus has a population of 9.5 million people. Russia has a population of 145 million people. It's much um, larger in terms of its military, weaponry, and economic assets. It's a giant on the doorstep. It cannot be ignored. So whether Belarus can actually pull this off, it would be a minor miracle if it did. But there is this clear wish within the country for a more democratic society. And that's what we've been seeing for the past month now with the demonstrations, particularly on the weekends. Doctor, I, I have just a, a brief amount of time left, but I just want to circle back to my uh, initial theory that there is a, a correlation between Germany in the mid-30s and, and Russia today in terms of its expansionist policy. Anything to that or am I way off base? Well, I think, I mean, if you look at what Russia is doing today, it's asserted itself in its own backyard. And it's trying to exert influence elsewhere in the world. It's got a big army. But the army is in no way comparable with that of the United States, for example. In that respect, also, the economy is about a seventh of the, of, the, of the GDP of the European Union. It's on the same sort of level economically as Italy. If you keep that perspective in mind, then Russia is playing a big game with very few weapons. All it's got are military weapons and the threat of nuclear weapons, which it has used once or twice that threat. So it's really playing out of its league. And I think really the question is how long Russia can continue to do this. It's managed to do it, in my view, because there's been no response from the United States. And it's the United States' lack of leadership in these type of conflicts, not making any kind of decisions, not making any commitment to any kind of democratic-leaning government in Europe. That is the big problem. And because of that, Putin has managed to do more or less anything he wants to in his own backyard. He's annexed Crimea from Ukraine. He's started a war in the Donbass of Ukraine. And he's seeking more control over Belarus and even moving, in some respects, to threaten the Baltic states and other neighbors as well. I mean, in some cases, like Armenia, they have moved closer to Russia and managed to change their governments uh, in a way that they wanted, but without offending Russia. But Belarus is very close to Russia like Ukraine. It's a Slavic nation an East Slavic nation with a similar language, similar culture, and Putin regards them as part of the Russian family. And that, I think, is the big problem for Belarus today. Dr. David Marples is with the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Here in Toronto, we have a fortunate problem. We have people coming here to our city. We have economic development. We have a need for more housing. We have a need for more places to live. And, you know, that is a, that's a good problem to have when you could have the opposite problem in terms of economic development and economic activity. But it also comes with thorny issues. Thorny issues about what makes a city. And what gives a city its character? No one ever says of a world-class city, man, the condos there are awesome. No one ever 
says that. It's the culture, it's the institutions that make a city. Having said that, where do you draw the line? Do you let market forces dictate development in your city? Because isn't that the best way to economic prosperity, not red tape, not government oversight? All of these questions are wrapped up in a local Toronto bar by the name of Sneaky D's. Now, Sneaky D's could be torn down. It's a possibility, only a possibility, but the city has received a proposal for a 13-story building to be put in its place. It's located on the corner of College and Bathurst. It began as a family business back in 1987. It is now both a restaurant and also a 200-plus capacity concert venue. And for many people in this city, they have memories of Sneaky D's. If not going to see a concert there, then maybe getting the nachos, which are citywide famous. The nachos at Sneaky D's or the brunch is excellent. People have a real affinity. They have very strong emotions about Sneaky D's. And that is in the mix too, when we talk about all of those questions about development. To talk further about whether the city should or could get involved in this decision, I am pleased to welcome to the program Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday. Welcome, Deputy Mayor. Hey, good day, Alan. Nice to talk to you. And what a great topic. This is the perfect intersection of politics and law. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure they'll get a lot of people talking about it. And you've described very well in your lead-in, you know, the, the, something that councillors go through, you know, every day or at least every week when we talk about development in our respective parts of the city. In this case, it's Sneaky D's. It's something uh, just about everybody can relate to. But otherwise, it's a, a green space or maybe a parking lot that people have a, a certain affinity or care about development uh, all about. Take me through the process here, because as I I said in my intro, the city has received a proposal for a building in that spot uh, at 431 College Street. What oversight, what abilities do council have, does council have, to say yes or no to something like that? Well, let's back it up. The Planning Act is what really dictates development all over Ontario. And then there's a whole bunch of legislation that goes through that. But from time to time, the city will receive an application, and it goes up online. And this one is already there. There's not a lot of details in it, but we do know it's a 13-story building. And the application will be weighed against the city's official plan and all of the policies that go underneath that. And that is, I call it the people's document. You know, council's the custodian. We set the policies and the rules in there. And then uh, developers come along, or landowners, anybody that owns property that wants to make a change, and they have to read that plan and make an application to the city and show that what they're proposing meets the official plan. Uh, one thing to say about the official plan is that it's not a static document, and it doesn't say that Toronto is going to stay the same forever. It gives some parameters to how growth works. One particular element of this particular proposal is that it is on the periphery of Kensington Market, and the official plan has some rules about that. 
And so uh, to say that this is a simple application would be far from the truth. I think this is a bit more complicated, but it is a very prominent spot at the corner of Bathurst and College, and it's reasonable to think that somebody wants to make a change there. So the process uh, will probably take quite a while, and there'll be planners and, and other city staff that are experts in this, and they will look closely at the application, and they will make recommendations to city council as to whether or not we should approve the application or deny it, or maybe uh, send it back to the developer and, and think a little bit more about it. But ultimately, council will make a decision at some point on this particular application, um, and it doesn't stop there. So if the developer is not satisfied with whatever council says, they can always go and appeal it to the planning appeal tribunal, and then it basically leaves the city government hands and goes to an outside body that are appointed by the province. So that's why I always say this is an intersection of politics and law, because council is often driven by politics. But at the end of the day, there is a, there's a bit of a law process around this, and at the end of the day, good planning usually prevails. And, and the city has often complained in the past that it can be overruled, that local concerns are overruled by this provincial body. Yes, you need to have a check and balance, though. So we have to be careful as politicians about what we put into our official plan, because that is the, the ground rules. And if you turn around and then you know shut something down for political reasons... That's not particularly fair to a developer. Now, I don't want to sound like I, I, you know, overly enthusiastic about developments. I, I agree that there needs to be a lot of protection, especially for the existing residents. And in this case, part of the protection I'd be thinking about is what does this mean to Kensington Market and College Street and Bathurst Street as prominent avenues in our city? And whatever is proposed, is it the right fit for that? And we want to strike a balance to say that we don't necessarily don't want change, but we want to make sure that change is right. And Deputy, speaking with Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday about the proposal to possibly put a 13-story building where Sneaky D's is, I will, um, I will note there, Councillor, that you did not mention uh, beloved concert space restaurant as part of those criteria. So that's getting uh, further down into the weeds, and uh, it would be an interesting play to uh, try to uh, bring the history about the people and the activities that go on. Usually our historical uh, documents tend to focus more on the building, or in the case of Kensington Market, on the district as a, as a marketplace with a deep history in the growth of Toronto. You know, to say a particular venue was something that needed to be preserved, whether or not it's functioning, you know, I'd draw your attention just up the street, Honest Ed's. It was a place that was near and dear to many people, and it eventually shut down and made way for more condos, and there's some stores and things that are associated with that. That's part of the city sort of turning over new leaves. There's nothing to say that Sneaky D's couldn't go right back into this place if it was approved. Um, it may not be the same place at the end of the day with the character, but uh, you know, change does happen. But it's very hard to say no to a development because of the idea of a bar with a with a venue. You have to be able to put your finger on exactly what the essence that you're trying to preserve is. And uh, I can't think of an example right now of something like this that would have hit the bar as something to be protected in a museum-like way. I would think of the horseshoe, for example, but that I think that's designated already as a heritage space, is it not? 
It may be, and I, you know, without opening the, the details of the document, I'd have to read a little further into exactly what it is the attributes were that they were trying to protect. And again, even if it's a historical place, it doesn't mean you can never change it. It means that you have to preserve the specific elements that the... Uh, that the designation is trying to protect. You know, often buildings will be historically designated and all they need to do is say, keep the windows and the facade, but the back of the building doesn't really matter because the activities weren't that important. Um, but those those documents expand on those uh, attributes further. And you know what, that could end up being part of the story in this case if they go through with that. But that falls under that great volume of policies that the that both the city council, the citizens of the city and the developers have to live under. Uh, last question to you, Deputy Mayor. Uh, our Sean O'Shea filed a story on this yesterday, and within his uh, story that ran on Global News on television, he had uh, a number of what we call streeters, you know, man on the street sort of thing. And, and a couple of the statements, I think, were indicative of how many people feel. They sort of said, we have too many condos already. And I'm wondering if you can address that uh, feeling and that opinion. Well, Part of me agrees with it. Uh, you know, we have a city that's growing really fast. And, you know, my brand of politics, and this is where I get to introduce it as a member of council, is is I try not to be overly aggressive in our growth. There are other members of council that think we should just be constantly churning out housing, and they think that's great. They're urbanists. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably more on the side of we need to slow things down. There's nothing wrong with a bit of growth, but don't, you know, unstrap everything and go as fast as you can. And that's the essence of uh, it's almost like sausage making through council. You bring all these ideas together and all these opinions. You take a vote, and eventually you get something at the end of the day. But I don't blame people if they live in the area to say, hey, it's, it's a classic feeling that, that I experience with residents and even in my own area personally, you know, not so fast, not so big. And we go through this process to try to calm things down and to try to get things that are right-sized. And hopefully that will work in this situation. Stephen Holliday is a councillor for Ward 2, Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.